Uh, Professor Parker will join us uh, very shortly. He just called, and the van that uh, commutes him from his course preceding this class uh, has been delayed, so he's delayed, but I think uh, Bob and I and Jeffrey have agreed we're going to go ahead and start. It's a great pleasure to have Bob Pape uh, here at Mershon to be in the series on Loving War that uh, Jeffrey Parker has put together for this uh, spring quarter. <coughs> Bob has his undergraduate degree from the University of Pittsburgh and his PhD from the University of Chicago. He's written a well-known book on air power and its effectiveness and its utility in different uh, contexts. His most recent work has been on suicide bombers and whether or not uh, they are motivated primarily by something peculiar in Islamic culture or rather by the strategic logic uh, of the suicide attack itself. And he wrote a, a piece that garnered a lot of attention in the American Political Science Review maybe 18 months ago or so. Uh, he's told me this morning that that generated an enormous interest and in his new book on this subject is coming out with Random House uh, sometime this summer. Uh, I won't try to uh, give you the elaborate background that Jeffrey would have, I'm sure, but without further ado, uh, maybe my most successful undergraduate student, Bob <laughs> Payne. Well, uh, it's, it's a great pleasure uh, to be here, and I'm very glad Rick said that, because uh, in 1979, I was a young undergraduate at the University of Pittsburgh taking some of my very first courses in IR, and who should there be but one of, uh, who at the time, Dick Cottom, one of our famous teachers at Pitt, um, his best graduate student, uh, Rick Herman, was teaching a course in Soviet foreign policy just a few weeks after the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan. And that was a stunning course at a stunning moment in time and uh, had a great effect on uh, uh, my life. Um, suicide terrorism has been rising around the world, but there's great confusion about why. Since many of the attacks, including those in 9-11, were perpetrated by Muslim suicide terrorists, many have presumed that the obvious central cause must be Islamic fundamentalism. This presumption has fueled the belief that future 9-11s can be avoided only by wholesale transformation of Muslim societies, which was a key reason for broad public support behind America's invasion of Iraq. However, this presumed connection between suicide terrorism and Islamic fundamentalism is misleading, and it may be encouraging policies, both foreign and domestic, that are likely to worsen our situation. I've spent the last two years compiling a database of every suicide bombing and suicide attack around the world from 1980 to 2003. And I define suicide attack in the classic sense of an individual killing himself or herself in order to kill others unless explicitly authorized by a nation state. Overall, this database includes 315 completed suicide terrorist attacks. They were done by 462 suicide terrorists, people who actually died to complete their mission. Last year, I published an initial article uh, on this database up through 2001. Before this, I knew that no think tank and no academic had collected such a database of suicide terrorism worldwide. What I didn't know, and I was actually quite surprised to find out, was that no government had done this either. 
the British didn't do it, the Americans didn't do it, we didn't start to count suicide attacks in our terrorist database, the one that we, the official one that we keep in Monterey, the actual one, until fall of 2002. And even the Israelis don't count suicide terrorist attacks worldwide. So, after I published the piece, a number of places became uh, quite interested in supporting more research, including the University of Chicago, the Carnegie Corporation, Argonne, and the Department of Defense Threat Reduction Agency. And I want to thank them all for supporting this research. They made it possible for me to uh, become, to form, become the director of the Chicago Project on Suicide Terrorism. What's different about this project is it collects information on suicide terrorism, not simply in English, but in fact using native language sources, Arabic, Hebrew, Tamil, and Russian, and other languages to try to collect as much information as possible about suicide terrorist attacks and suicide terrorist attackers. This survey, the project that I'm about to describe for you, examines all the available open source documents from the suicide terrorist groups themselves, from target countries, from the media, that is from FIBIS and from Lexis, in addition to conducting research uh, in, we've sent people to Cairo and Beirut. I want to emphasize what I'm about to talk about today is not simply a list of lists, but actually represents quite a fair bit of uh, new information. And just to give you um, uh, uh, some ideas, I've brought some examples to show you. Uh, when I say that we've collected information from the suicide terrorist groups themselves, uh, the suicide terrorist groups, you might be surprised to learn, are actually quite proud of their behavior, quite proud of their individuals who have operated for them, especially in their local communities. This is a yearbook that's put out by the Tamil Tigers in Sri Lanka. This yearbook, as you can see, is a glossy, and it has, as you can see, pictures of the suicide attackers. And as you can see, and I've shown this a few times, that's why it's kind of getting a little beaten up at the moment, it has lots of information. It has their names, it has their ages, it has the places they were born. It has lots of information. Of course, it's in Tamil, so it has to be translated. But we also have such information for Hezbollah, for Hamas, for a number of uh, groups. And it's um, simply the case that breaking down the language barrier really provides quite a bit of information. So how is it, just to, one other thing to show you. Um, in terms of collecting information on the attacks and on the attackers, I'm not just collecting, as I said, a list of lists, but what we have, I've got about a dozen of these kind of folders. <laughs> um, and what it includes are multiple, multiple pieces of information about each attack. So what I'm describing for you are not just sort of a thin list of information, but actually in almost every case, we have four and five pieces of confirming information about the data I'm about to show you. So that the reason um, uh, I think to pay attention um, is partly the arguments I'm making, but it's also partly the case that, um, in my humble opinion, I think this represents the most reliable survey of suicide terrorism that actually exists. Um, but, of course, I was involved in creating it, so I might have a reason <laughs> in saying that. Uh, what does the data show? First, um, data shows that suicide terrorism and ordinary terrorism are moving in opposite directions. 
from the mid-1980s to uh, 2003, suicide terror, I'm sorry, terrorist incidents of all types have actually been declining, as you can see, falling by nearly half, while at the same time, suicide terrorism, which is a small part of that overall picture, has been skyrocketing and climbing at an alarming rate. Uh, if you're wondering, preliminary analysis of 2004 and early view of 2005 shows that 2004 is, on, is probably about the same as 2003. 2005 is on track to set a new record. Seeing these opposite trajectories of terrorism and suicide terrorism um, tells us a couple of things, and probably the most important thing it does is it helps us understand why there was such a deep failure of imagination before 9-11. You see, unless you were specifically tracking suicide terrorism, which, as I said, we weren't doing, then you're likely to miss how the threat is actually growing. Um, what else does the data show? The data also shows that Islamic fundamentalism is not as closely associated with suicide terrorism as many people think. Overall, there have been 315 suicide terrorist attacks worldwide from 1980 to 2003. The world leader is the LTTE, the Tamil Tigers in Sri Lanka. This is a Marxist-Leninist group. It's opposed to religion. It draws from Hindu families in uh, the Tamil regions of Sri Lanka. This group has conducted 76 suicide terrorist attacks more than Hamas, more than Islamic Jihad. Further, at least 30% of Muslim attacks were conducted by secular groups. So overall, 50% of suicide attacks are not associated with Islamic fundamentalism. Now, because the LTTE is unfamiliar, certainly unfamiliar to most Americans, I think it's helpful to show you that the LTTE conducts a suicide attack in the classic sense of a suicide attack. These pictures are of an actual LTTE suicide attack, the actual suicide assassination of Rajiv Gandhi. You all know that suicide terrorist groups like to make martyr videos. The LTTE goes further. They like to videotape the actual attacks so that the videotape can be brought back as inspiration for the rest of the group. In this case, in 1991, when Gandhi was killed, the, video, the cameraman who was part of the LTTE squad got so close that when the bomb went off, the cameraman was also killed, and the Indian government was able to rescue 10 frames from the cameraman's picture of the actual attack. The attacker in this case is Danu, who's a woman who's to the far left in the white. She is the LTTE suicide attacker. The bottom picture shows she's about to put a garland on Gandhi. What happened in the very next second is that she exploded an explosive belt under her garment, killing everybody in that picture and the cameraman, and was the first person ever to use a suicide belt. The Palestinians got the idea of using a suicide belt from the LTTE, not the other way around. So when I say the LTTE are a suicide terrorist group, they're a suicide terrorist group in the real sense of the word. Now, to explain suicide terrorism, my book analyzes the phenomenon at three levels. 
It seeks to explain why suicide terrorism makes sense for terrorist organizations. I call that the strategic logic. Why it gains mass support, the social logic, and what motives drive individuals to do it, the individual logic. Each level is important, especially because suicide terrorism is conducted by non-state actors who lack the coercive apparatus of a state to compel local society or individuals to support the operation. My book devotes whole sections to each of those three um, uh, elements, basically one-third, one-third, one-third. Uh, today, I'm not going to be able to do that. <laughs> that would just be too much. I'm going to focus on the strategic logic partly because of time and partly because it's the strategic logic that's the logic that unifies the other levels. Uh, I'm going to mention the other levels briefly. I'm also going to present some uh, information on the demographic profile of suicide terrorists, which I think you're going to find quite interesting and see how it fits to, uh, into the overall argument. What nearly all suicide terrorist attacks have in common is a specific secular strategic goal to coerce a democratic state to compel, uh, to withdraw military forces from territory that the terrorists view as their homeland. From Lebanon to Israel to Sri Lanka to Kashmir to Chechnya, every suicide campaign from 1980 to 2003 has been waged by terrorist groups whose main goal has been to establish or maintain self-determination for their community's homeland by compelling a democratic power to withdraw from that territory. Religion is rarely the root cause, although it is often used as a tool by terrorist organizations in recruiting and in service of other um, operations to serve the broader strategic objective. There are three general patterns in the data that support my conclusion. The first concerns the timing of suicide terrorist attacks. Suicide terrorist attacks rarely occur as isolated or random events. The attacks tend to occur in clusters that are clumped together that look very much like a campaign, a military campaign, campaigns. Specifically, of the, 300 and, um, of, of the 315 suicide terrorist attacks, 301 occur in coherent, organized, strategic campaigns that terrorist groups design for specific political purpose, uh, mainly secular purpose. Only 5% are truly isolated or random events. So I'm not saying that uh, my uh, pattern covers all of it, but it does cover 95%. And the, fa the striking fact about a suicide terrorist campaign is not only how it's initiated by a suicide terrorist group, but also how much suicide terrorist groups can turn them off. The discipline for actually turning off a campaign when the organization says the campaign is going to end is really quite striking, um, for especially for non-state actors. And it, it shows itself in these campaigns. This table shows all the campaigns that have occurred from 1980 to 2003, 18 in all, and five were ongoing as of 2004. This table reorganizes the campaigns by the disputes that produce them. 
As you can see, suicide terrorist campaigns are directed at gaining control of what the terrorists see as their national homeland, and specifically at ejecting foreign forces from that territory. This has been a major or the central objective of every suicide terrorist campaign since 1980. Now, I'm not saying that foreign occupation is a sufficient condition but the military presence or control of the homeland does appear to be a necessary condition. In the case of Iraq, before our invasion in March 2003, there was never an instance of suicide terrorism in Iraq in its history. Obviously, that's changed since March 2003. So the second pattern is nationalist goals. The third pattern concerns target selection. If suicide terrorism is a calculated coercive strategy, one might expect that the strategy would be applied to target states who are generally considered to be the most vulnerable to coercive punishment. Rightly or wrongly, democracies are widely viewed as especially vulnerable to coercive punishment, and the target state of every modern suicide terrorist campaign has been a democracy. The United States, France, Israel, India, Sri Lanka, Turkey, and Russia were all democracies when they were attacked. A good case to kind of show you the difference um, is the PKK, which is the Kurdish group that did suicide terrorism in Turkey against the Turkish government. Now, of course, Turkey has been somewhat brutal to its Kurds. But Saddam Hussein was far more brutal <laughs> to his Kurds than the Turkish government was to theirs. And what had happened was the PKK and the Kurds in general used suicide terrorism against the Turks, a democracy, but never against Saddam Hussein. And I think now that you understand the logic, you would see why. Why would you ever think killing some civilians in Iraq would have influenced Saddam's decision? So the bottom line is that the timing, the goals, and the societies targeted by suicide terrorism suggest that it is a coherent strategy designed to cause democratic states to abandon occupation or military control of the territory that the terrorists view as their homeland. Al-Qaeda fits the pattern. We have long known that a major goal of Osama bin Laden has been to compel the United States to withdraw from the Arabian Peninsula. But what this survey has for the first time is the universe of Al-Qaeda suicide attackers. Not everybody in the organization, but the universe of Al-Qaeda suicide attackers from 1995 to the end of 2003, 71 individuals who actually died to kill others on an Al-Qaeda mission. This is the universe. It's not all of Al-Qaeda, but it's the reason we care about Al-Qaeda. These are the folks that make Al-Qaeda a threat to us. As I said, overall, there have been 71 Al-Qaeda suicide attackers from 95 to 2003. Of these, we know the names and nationality of 67. As you can see on the table, the largest number, 34, have come from Saudi Arabia. Now, I'm not saying there's no transnational support for Al-Qaeda, but it's important to know that a core appeal of al-Qaeda is to compel the United States to leave the Persian Gulf. I want to go a little further in this direction. 
because you see, we can actually, now that we know the universe of Al-Qaeda suicide terrorists, we can ask a question in a harder way, which is, what is uh, the difference between an Al-Qaeda suicide terrorist coming from a country where there is presence of American combat troops and where there is not? Where there is and where there is not. Um, and with one exception, all of the Al-Qaeda suicide terrorists came from Sunni-majority countries. All from Muslim countries, obviously. All from Sunni-majority countries. Hence, we can compare the rate at which Al-Qaeda suicide terrorists emerge from Sunni-majority countries with and without the presence of American combat troops. And I mean combat troops. As you can see, Al-Qaeda suicide terrorists are over 10 times more likely to come from a Sunni country with American combat presence than from a Sunni country without American forces. This means, and this is probably hard to hear, but this means that American military policy was likely, the most likely, pivotal factor leading to September 11th. Although Islamic fundamentalism may have mattered somewhat, the stationing of tens of thousands of American combat forces on the Arabian Peninsula from 1990 to 2001 probably increased the risk of Al-Qaeda suicide attacks against Americans, including 9-11, over 10 times. The implication for America's future security. If Al-Qaeda's truly transnational support were to dry up tomorrow, the group would remain a robust threat to the United States. However, if Al-Qaeda no longer drew recruits from the Sunni Muslim countries where there is now heavy American combat presence, the remaining transnational network would pose a far smaller threat and may well simply collapse. With the conquest of Iraq and the increasing force presence in many countries on the rim of the Arabian Peninsula, Osama bin Laden has obviously failed to get us out. However, the attack data for Al-Qaeda tells us more clearly how Al-Qaeda's strategy has changed since 9-11. As you can see, before 9-11, Al-Qaeda conducted five suicide terrorist attacks. Since 9-11, in 2002 and 2003, Al-Qaeda has conducted 15 suicide terrorist attacks, killing 439 people, more than all the years before 9-11 combined. For people who are wondering whether Al-Qaeda is weaker or stronger since 9-11, Al-Qaeda is stronger since 9-11. What are they doing with that strength? Focusing on the identity of the victims helps us to see Al-Qaeda's strategic logic, how that logic has evolved. Although many of the attacks have occurred across a broad range of geography and in many different Muslim countries, as you can see from this slide, the main target across all the attacks are Western civilians. British, Germans, Italians, French, Australians, and others who are allied to the United States. In other words, for the past few years, Al-Qaeda has been focusing on stripping the United States of its allies 
And after Spain, you might notice, uh, they probably think they've made some headway. We also know this not simply from the pattern of attacks, but because we have an actual Al-Qaeda planning document. In September 2003, Al-Qaeda published an actual planning document, a 42-page document in Arabic about how to deal with the United States after Iraq. That document was put on a radical Islamic website and found by Norwegian intelligence. The Norwegians found it in December 2003, and they gave it to us. At the time, we didn't pay much attention to this particular document. But let me just tell you a little about this document. The document goes to great lengths to explain that for the next few years, Al-Qaeda should not try to attack the United States on the homeland, but instead should focus on attacking America's allies in order to strip America of its allies, especially in Iraq, which will ultimately increase economic pressure on the United States. Then it goes further, and it analyzes whether they should hit Poland, six pages, Britain, six pages, Spain, six pages. Uh, I've, over the years, as you know, I did a lot of work on bombing and coercion. I've, I've, done, I've, I've read a lot of theses on coercion. This is an excellent analysis, unfortunately, of coercion. They come to the conclusion that the country they should hit is Spain. They should hit Spain. They should do it just before the Madrid elections because that'll knock Spain out of the war and bring with it American uh, other allies of the United States. I want to read for you a few passages from the document. As I said, this is six months before the Spanish attack. Therefore, we say that in order to force the Spanish government to withdraw from, the Iraq, from, the, uh, from Iraq, the resistance should be dealt painful blows to its forces. This should be accompanied by an information campaign clarifying the truth of the matter inside Iraq. It is necessary to make utmost use of the coming general election in Spain of March of next year. We think that the Spanish government could not tolerate more than two, maximum three blows, after which it will have to withdraw as a result of popular pressure. If its troops still remain in Iraq after these blows, then the victory of the Socialist Party is almost secured and the withdrawal of Spanish forces will be on its electoral program. Lastly, we emphasize that a withdrawal of Spanish retaliation forces from Iraq would put huge pressure on the British in Iraq and pressure that Tony Blair might not be able to withstand and hence the domino tiles would follow quickly. And of course... That's what's happened. Okay, that's what's happened, um, and we now think that the that the document is real. Um, as I said, I'm not going to be able to talk about the other levels of analysis in detail, but I do want to briefly discuss some of the main points I make in the book about the social logic and the individual logics. Um, and again, I'm just going to touch the top of the waves because I just want to give you an overview. I don't want you to think I'm uh, not telling you what's in the book. The social logic of suicide terrorism is important. Even if suicide terrorism is used for strategic reasons, 
Protracted suicide terrorist campaigns would be unlikely without significant community support. In general, suicide terrorists are walk-in volunteers, which means that the suicide terrorist organizations must have a reasonably high profile in the local community for those walk-ins to find uh, the organization in a short period of time. As a result, community support is important for preventing informants on a wide scale and even on a small scale from disclosing the identity of the recruiters to the security forces. Further, community support is crucial for martyrdom. As you're going to see in a moment, the idea of martyrdom is very important to suicide terrorists, and you can already see how important it is in uh, the pamphlets and the literature. An individual may wish to die as a martyr, but only a community can make a martyr. It's up to the community to accord an individual that status, certainly after the individual's dead. Although other differences may matter, my book shows that community support for suicide terrorism is especially likely when there's a religious difference between the occupier and the occupied society. A religious difference makes it easier for terrorist leaders to frame the conflict in zero-sum terms, to demonize the enemy, and to legitimate martyrdom. Of the nine disputes that led to suicide terrorism, eight had a religious difference, even though those religious differences, as you can see on the table, were often quite different. The one that did not have a religious difference, the Kurdish PKK in Turkey, was also the least aggressive of the suicide terrorist campaigns. My book demonstrates the importance of religious difference through a large-end study of rebellions by national minorities whose governments were controlled by a democracy over the last 20 years using the famous Minorities at Risk database. I also conduct a variety of case studies to evaluate the causal mechanisms that are often triggered when a foreign occupation also involves a religious difference. I really just don't have time to go through that uh, in this particular talk. But the key point I would like to leave you with is that there is a role for religion in suicide terrorism, but not the one that's normally conceived. Suicide terrorism is not so much committed by religious fanatics looking for a quick trip to paradise as it is by a variety of secular and religious individuals who fear that their societies will be unalterably transformed by a religiously motivated attacker. This is why the crusader image is so important to Osama bin Laden's mobilization appeals. But this is, notice what I'm saying. Religion doesn't matter independently of circumstance. It matters in the context of foreign occupation and nationalism. That's what's important about religion. My book also analyzes the individual logic of suicide terrorism. This has been a great puzzle. Uh, and I argue that the problem is not so much an empirical problem as a conceptual one. Many people are trying to understand suicide terrorism through the lens of the ordinary suicides that they see or read about in the newspapers every day. But suicide terrorism is different. Long ago, Emile Durkheim showed that there are actually several different types of suicide. 
There's egoistic suicide, which is caused by extreme social detachment, and altruistic suicide, which is caused by excessive social integration. The ordinary suicides that we see and read about every day are overwhelmingly egoistic, just as we expect. However, many suicide terrorists are probably committing a form of altruistic suicide. Indeed, many are quite socially integrated and often carry out coordinated team attacks, which indicates a clear commitment to a collective purpose. Further, the suicide terrorist organizations themselves go to great lengths to embed themselves in the community by providing social services and to present suicide attackers as noble martyrs as a key way to recruit more. The social construction of altruistic martyrdom reveals that the suicide terrorist organization thinks that altruism is crucial to recruiting suicide terrorists. This does not mean that suicide terrorist organizations create altruistic people. Rather, they create the conditions under which altruistic people can be confident of gaining respect for such actions. It also does not mean that suicide terrorists are reacting out of pure altruism. Even if mixed motives matter, absent the altruistic motive to end a foreign occupation, many suicide terrorists would probably not commit suicide anyway. Now what I'd like to do is talk to you about the demographics of suicide terrorists. As I told you, uh, the survey has collected quite a bit of information about the demographics of the people who actually volunteer and take part in suicide terrorism. Overall, there are 462 total suicide terrorist attacks around the world from 1980 to 2003. We've been able to document the names of 333, identify the ideological affiliation of 384, the gender of 381, the ages of 278. Also been able to collect quite a bit of socioeconomic data, especially for Arab attackers, those from Lebanon, Palestine, and Al-Qaeda. Been able to identify education levels for 67 and income levels for 77. And I want to talk to you a little bit about uh, what we can say. First, this data gives us some fresh insight into past cases. Prior to this effort, our understanding of Hezbollah has actually been quite thin. We knew that Hezbollah was an umbrella organization and that Islamic fundamentalism obviously mattered. Many speculated that the attackers must be poor, uneducated religious fanatics. We now know much, much more about those attackers and that they come from a far broader range of backgrounds. As you can see from the slide, from 1982 to 86, there were a total of 36 suicide attacks involving a total of 41 attackers, those who actually died. So I'm not including any attempts. We don't have any of that problem. Um, we have the names of 37, gender, you can see age, et cetera, et cetera. But probably the most important finding has to do with the ideology of the suicide terrorists from Lebanon. 
we're able to identify the ideology of 38 of the 41 suicide terrorist attackers, over 90%. 21%, or 8 of the 38, are Islamic fundamentalists. 27 of the 38, or 71%, are secular, communists, and socialists. Three of the 38 are Christian. One is actually a Christian high school teacher with a BA. Now, as I told you, in the primary sources, we have lots of pictures and lots of information about the demographics of suicide terrorists. I thought you'd be interested in seeing some of the pictures of the Lebanese suicide terrorists, and especially um, uh, four of the six women. As you can see, it's quite striking to see them in Western clothes, with makeup. This is hardly the image of an Islamic fundamentalist. The second point I'd make is that we also have pictures of men in leisure suits. <laughs> uh, so it really is the case. Uh, and in fact, um, when I began this research, uh, as you can tell, I had a team of researchers who were fluent in other languages. And I was very curious. I thought we would collect, given my, my first article on suicide terrorism, if I was right, I thought there'd be an abundance of information on suicide terrorists in the local community uh, information. And the very first uh, month that we started the project, uh, my guy from Algeria, who was uh, doing the first cut at the Arabic sources in Lebanon, came running in to show me the pictures of the suicide terrorists from Lebanon. Because, of course, he had read my article, but he didn't really believe they weren't Islamic fundamentalists. Um, but he was really caught by surprise. And the truth is that there's just increasing mounds of data especially going to our bat, the past case, that the key case we used to always think of as Islamic fundamentalism driving suicide terrorism is not connected with that at all. Uh, and uh, you're left to quite wonder how it is that Thomas Friedman has been able to write all these stories because he was the New York Times correspondent. How he became the famous Thomas Friedman was by being the New York Times correspondent for four years in Beirut, writing story after story about Islamic fundamentalism driving suicide terrorism. In case you're wondering, on the, far, uh, on the far right, the woman on the far right, that's Norma. She's the Christian high school teacher. She's the Christian high school teacher. Uh, the other thing that's interesting, uh, another point that's interesting um, in the characteristics of suicide attackers overall, uh, many people have asked questions about what's the distinguishing characteristic of women? What's the distinguishing characteristic of women? Well, we have a fair number of women, and we can analyze some of their characteristics. One of the most important characteristics of female attackers has to do actually just with their age. Just with their age. This is how they stand out more than any other way. This slide compares the ages of groups with both male and female suicide attackers. Both male and female suicide attackers. The key point is that the women tend to be significantly older. They have almost the same age distribution from 15 to 18, which is actually quite small for both categories. Um, and uh, the real difference is actually in the over 24 age cohort, where nearly half of all women suicide attackers tend to be over the age of 24, and only um, um, about a fifth, 22% of males. 
And so it is actually an interesting hypothesis. Why might this be the case? And I've got some graduate students that are trying to use some of this data to do some more research to try to figure this out. And one of the uh, 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 hypotheses that's being pursued is that this age distribution may reflect uh, the impact of declining marriage prospects for mature women in traditional societies. I'm not saying that's the only hypothesis. I'm not saying that's true. But I'm saying that um, it certainly burrs more research. Uh, we also have important information about the ideology of the attackers. This slide compares the number of suicide attackers who carried out attacks for secular and religious groups. And again, just as in the attack data, once we actually look at the uh, data on the attackers themselves, the attackers are much more secular than many expect. We have ideological data on 384 of the 462 attackers. Of these, 43% are religious and 57% are secular. Even if we assume all the unaccounted for data, all the missing data should be coded as religious, which is what the extreme case is, even if we assume all the missing data is religious, it's still a 50-50 split. So the key point is that suicide terrorism is not overwhelmingly a religious phenomenon. Now let's turn to some socioeconomic data, uh, which we can do for the Arab attackers. This slide compares the education level of suicide attackers in Lebanon and Palestine to their peer groups. The attackers are much more educated than many expect. Only 10% of the attackers have primary education or less, compared to nearly half in their societies as a whole. 54% of the attackers have post-secondary education, compared to only a small fraction in their societies as a whole. Let's look at income. This slide compares the income level of suicide attackers in Lebanon and Palestine to their peer groups. The attackers are working class or middle class, but not unemployed. 17% of the attackers are at the bottom of the income group or unemployed, um, compared to a third in their societies as a whole. 76% of the attackers are working or middle class, they're technicians, mechanics, waiters, policemen, and teachers who have jobs. Now, it is true that in the days or the weeks just before a suicide attack, many of these people left their jobs. <laughs> so it's possible that that is what has led many people to think they were unemployed, because technically <laughs> that would be true. But they left their jobs in order to prepare to actually conduct the attack. When I presented this data to the, uh, uh, the, the second in charge of Israel's Homeland Security, he asked me, what's the key measure of the launch of a suicide attack? Because, of course, there's different, we can parse this in a lot of different ways. And I said, well, the fact of the matter is the key measure of a launch is an unexplained disappearance from work for about 10 days or two weeks. That's not going to cover, that's not going to narrow the shot group down very much, but that's the point about what's happening with suicide uh, attack. Finally, we, this slide compares the income and education levels of secular and religious attackers in Lebanon and Palestine. There's not much difference, and that's the point. 
both secular and religious attackers have the same income distribution. And on education, if anything, religious attackers are more highly educated, but this difference is not statistically significant. Everything up until now has been significant. This difference is actually a wash given the end. So the bottom line is that suicide attackers are not mainly poor, uneducated, religious zealots, but well-educated workers from both religious and secular backgrounds. Many are people who would go on to productive lives if they chose not to do a suicide attack. Now, understanding that suicide terrorism is mainly a response to foreign occupation rather than the product of Islamic fundamentalism has important policy implications for how the United States and its allies should conduct the war on terrorism. Perhaps most important, it means that a systematic policy to use military force to transform Muslim societies is not likely to reduce the number of suicide terrorists but it's likely to increase the number of suicide terrorists coming at us. In Iraq, even if our intentions are good, the United States cannot depend on democracy to dampen the risk of suicide terrorism so long as American forces are stationed there. Overall, our best strategy is to return to the policy that the United States had for decades prior to 1990. Our main policy for securing oil in the Persian Gulf, offshore balancing. During the 1970s and 1980s, the United States did not station a single combat soldier in the Persian Gulf. We instead maintained the infrastructure, the force, structure, force basing structure necessary to rapidly deploy heavy combat troops to the region if necessary. This strategy of offshore balancing worked quite well against Saddam in 1990 and is again our best strategy for securing our oil interests in the Persian Gulf today. Now shifting back to a strategy of offshore balancing will obviously take time. Until then, I think it's quite important, as long as we have heavy combat troops stationed in the Persian Gulf, to maintain tight border controls. Because in addition to foreign occupation, the one thing that history has shown, uh, that I'll be glad to tell you more about in the Q&A, is that defenses have actually been more effective at stopping suicide terrorists than offensive military action. Anyway. With that, uh, 45, my 45 minutes is up. <laughs> we'll take questions for a few minutes. Uh, after whatever you want, I'm here at why your disposal. Answer, why don't you fix he was first. I noticed in your talk, and I don't know if you spoke, you know, you cover any Western groups like the IRA, the Bash, Shining Path. Yes. Because I don't remember calling in and hearing any suicide attacks by them. Yep. Yeah, uh, it has to do with this, um, part of the answer has to do with this business of religious difference, not any one religion. And I'm going to, yep, I'm going to come right to that in just a second. And so what I did is I collected a database from the Minority at Risk database, which some of the poli-sci faculty here will be familiar with, which allows me to collect concentrated national minorities who are in democracies who might be potential candidates for a rebellion. 
And then I'm able to evaluate whether or not rebellions occurred or did not occur and whether there's a religious difference or not a religious difference. Well, it turns out that the combination of rebellion and religious difference <laughs> accounts for uh, 7 of 14 in that cell, but over half of those uh, uh, in that cell turn to suicide terrorism, which is significant at the .001 level for the poli-sci folks in the room. But to answer your question, in that particular cell, of, it only accounts for 7 of the 14. So I further unpack and analyze why only seven of those 14. The IRA case is one of the seven that does not escalate to suicide terrorism. And the pattern that I find is that in all seven of those cases that don't escalate to suicide terrorism, the Democratic occupier is making concessions prior just to the ordinary rebellion. And if you fall, go back to the IRA case, Almost all the violence in the IRA cases in the 1970s. It's kind of a front-end loaded conflict. And then you have martyrs, right? You actually have the, the they, you know, people are willing to die for the IRA. What's different about the IRA case is there's not that much impetus to kill. You see, what suicide terrorism is about is not so much getting people to die. The reason, the main reason to do suicide terrorism is to kill, to increase the effectiveness of killing your enemy. And what's happening from the 1980s on is the uh, British government is making negotiations and concessions and changes that's actually diminishing all the violence in general, right? And so they're actually making great headway without suicide terrorism. Randy. Yeah, it's yeah. They're over educators, far more education, but they're in the working class thing, and they're loners because they're seventy-one percent single. Yep. So it kind of does look like the profile of the kind of. Yep. That that would be true. Well, that would be true. That would be true. And they don't get any sex because they're yep. single. That <laughs> that Randy Randy that would be true. That's not true. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, it's a great question. I expect smart questions right from you, but there's a direct answer. You would be right in the pattern of the data if that was, in fact, people who were 55 and 60 years old in those jobs. What you're not controlling for, you're right in the initial observation, but now control for age. Okay, Run back to the age cohort, and you'll see that how many college students do you know in this room who are going to be, who are now hyper-educated compared to American society, are the CEOs of companies. Okay. okay. Not that many in this room right now. No, so it's, you're... The question is this. Okay. Including your archive, I think suicide terrorists are, are far better than terrorists in general are killing. Yes. They, but they only kill 13 right. per, per attack. Right. That's pretty paltry. That's, uh, first of all, I mean, I think I can do better. <laughs> <laughs> The next time we're occupied, we're going to come to you.
why should we do <coughs> I mean, yes, their point is that they want to scare us and they want us to appease, right? I mean, that's what the saying is. They're just appeasers. Well, that's the point. Right? They, they're actually more successful than that low level. That the policy implication is don't appease. This is what they want you to do. There's only 13 people per killing. There's many other things that are more important in life. Even if it's going to get a lot of press, don't change your policy. It's perfectly true. If you want, if you can accept more 9-11s, okay, that's the real issue here. It's not 13, so you can minimize it, but the real issue for us is not 13. The real issue is future 9-11s. If you can stand up and make the case that I want to maintain those troops in Iraq or the troops in the Persian Gulf, even if every few years 3,000 Americans are killed in New York City or um, Chicago or Los Angeles, that's the case. And in fact, this data would support it. This data would say that in fact you are, um, uh, I cannot tell you that you're making a wrong value choice. But what I can tell you is that's the choice. And this is the same thing I told, uh, to, I said to the White House who sponsored this conference and the Justice Department, which is the key thing you need to understand is that if we go on and conquer another Muslim country, what we're doing that, there may be good reasons to do it. There may be good reasons to do it, but the key thing we have to understand is that's increasing the risk of the next 9-11. So you're not doing it to diminish that risk. If you assume that by compliance, whatever that is, there was no demand at 9-11. It wasn't like they gave us a list of demands. You comply. Here's what you have to do if you do it. If you do what we ask, then we won't bomb you again. But you're, you're assuming that if we get out of Iraq, don't do anything we want to do in the Middle East or what we're supposed to do, that somehow that constitutes compliance. Uh, first of all, I'm not saying we give them everything we want. I'm not saying we give them the oil. What matters here, what matters here is not overreacting and just doing, any, just, just doing anything to just stick it in their eye. We've got to keep our eye on our interest here. Our interest is the oil. And we have a good strategy for maintaining that oil. I'm not calling for just doing whatever they want, take their list of demands and buying it. I'm saying, look, we have interest in oil. We have a strategy that's very effective for that interest. We, have, we may have to go back in and fight another war in the, uh, uh, in the Arabian Peninsula someday, but that war should be for oil, not regime change. Right. And so therefore, because Britain is acquiescing, uh, we shouldn't expect the Northern Ireland to absolutely be against Yep, so far so good. But do we see those kinds of resurgence, nonviolent martyrdom or you know, self-mutilation, self-immolation, things like that? Well, you did just in the case you... Well, two points, yeah. The answer is yes, um, two ways. First, um, in the trajectory of suicide attacks um, in the campaigns, they often start with just a couple of attacks. That is, there's often a prior rebellion that does not get the concessions, does not move the democracy. Then that escalates to a couple of suicide attacks. Then that escalates, as in the case of uh, Lebanon, there were only, there were, as I said, 36 suicide attacks, 41 attackers. 
If you look at the trajectory over time, it's a slope like that. The same as the Palestinian case, a slope like that. So that, in fact, for just the suicide attacks, the answer is it does meet the test of that trajectory you're asking for. Let's even broaden this out in the question of uh, are there precursors of martyrdom to suicide attacks? Let's take the case of the LTTE. The LTTE not only does suicide terrorism, but they did something they started in 1984, even before suicide terrorism. What it means to be just a member of the LTTE is you have to wear a leather thong with a capsule of cyanide around your neck. That capsule is refilled every two or three months. The purpose of that capsule, and I don't count them in my suicide attackers, is that if you're involved in an operation and you're about to be captured, you are to bite on your capsule, lacerate your gums, and be dead in two minutes. Over 600 LTTE fighters have committed suicide in that way rather than be taken prisoner. And in fact, only a handful have ever been captured by the, Colum by the government in Colombo, typically by pumping their stomachs uh, rapidly. So that, in fact, we actually have that. Yeah, the belief that the external terrorism is not getting you what you want and that the suicide terrorism will. Let's go back to the LTTE and provide another point case. The, where, the LTTE's first suicide attack occurred in July, on July 5th, 1987. It was a truck bombing attack that occurred against an army barracks by the Columban, uh, Columbo, uh, the uh, Sri Lankan government while the soldiers in that barracks were asleep. It killed about 70 people in that attack. Prebakarian, the head of the LTTE, says he got that from the uh, Marine barracks bombing in Beirut in 1983. Moreover, the Israelis, who retaliated for that by killing some um, uh, suspected Hezbollah uh, attacks, killed three Tamil tigers who were actually conducting training operations in Lebanon <laughs> with Hezbollah. So there's just a strong uh, uh, reason to think that, in fact, there was learning by suicide terrorist groups that suicide terrorism pays. <laughs> but Moscow and so forth. But in fact, on a daily basis, they're blowing up 
uh, soldiers, block posts, and so forth. Yep. They blow up May, the May 9th parade. I suspect that May 9th is going to have something else happen in the session. Well, let me do it. Yeah, you've got about three or four different points, and let me try to deal with them kind of in increasing order. First is the coding of the democracies. So I got the years right. I'm using Jaworski's coding. So I'm not making up my own coding here. I'm using the standard coding by Jaworski. Carlos Boyce, who many of you might know, has updated that coding. Um, so this is a, uh, a mafia of people in <laughs> comparative who have coded the, uh, those years. Um, and so I'm not... So it's their mistake. Um, I don't... <laughs> you could if you wanted to say that, but the fact is they hold elections. The second point is um, whether or not if you only looked at civilian and military, you'd come up with a different view. Well, the fact of the matter is you can delete from the data. <laughs> okay. What you want to do is not add new cases... So you're, this is kind of the inverse of the selection problem, right? You're saying, what, do we, what happens if we not add more cases, but let's delete from the cases Bob has? Well, you're still going to end up with just about every single one of those campaigns because, in fact, almost every single one of those campaigns involve both. <laughs> so they're not tightly discriminating, not in the way that you're thinking. Third point, when this goes back to uh, bombing to win, one of the complaints that people had was the opposite problem in bombing to win. Remember in Bombing to Win, I said there's a difference between punishment and denial. And what people said was, wait a minute, when I kill, when I'm bombing a civilian, sometimes that's punishment because I'm not actually taking territory. All I'm doing is punishing the enemy society. You remember that whole debate that happened about 10 years ago, right? Well, I'm not making that. <laughs> in Bombing to Win, I was careful to, uh, uh, sometimes that's right. When you bomb a military target, that inflicts punishment. The Battle of the Somme in 1916 is a perfect case of punishment. In this case, for the terrorist groups, they have no denial capability. They have no real ability to take and hold territory in a hard way in a pitched battle against their opponents. Whether they're killing civilians or military, what they're doing in essence is punishing society. Yep. Yep. Don't you think that in the American case, do you think Americans are more willing to see soldiers dying from terrorist suicide attacks in Iraq than civilians dying in the United States? And so it's such a sustained power that this this like democracy will not be able to endure this wrong. Well, it's difficult to test, point number one. Point number two, the 241 dead Marines in Beirut in 1983 were all Marines, okay, um, and uh, that did not <laughs> cause the effect that you're saying. Uh, so uh, we don't have a lot of N to be able to test that in a systematic way. I mean, you have to keep in mind, we only have the data that we have. It's only 20-some years old. I can't tell you absolutely that there's nothing to that point. I can just tell you I'm a bit skeptical. I can give you the reasons, and I can tell you we don't have a lot of the data to truly get to the bottom of it, but I can't. Pardon me? Well, that's as good as, that's as, good as the data. Well, it's as good as we can drive the data to. But I'm going to go over here to John. Oh, of course. Yep. If it is the case of Osama bin Laden and a huge number of other people think the United States invaded Iraq to really control the oil and destroy Islam, if under these attacks, suicide attacks and otherwise, the United States abandons Iraq even in an orderly fashion without controlling the oil in that direction, and obviously without destroying Islam, that's right. I'm 
Possible, possible. Yeah, possible. And the truth is, as long as that serves my interest or America's interest in securing that oil, I really don't care. In other words, and I'm and I'm and I'm not. I'm going to accept that because of my interest in the oil and my interest in not having more dead Americans that don't serve my national interest. So, if you want to say, if you want to know why, it's because. Tapes a nationalist. I'm an American nationalist who wants to promote our interests and save American lives. And that's what that policy is best to do. So that's the reason I'm, I, I support that policy. You, if you think that it's worth it to have dead Americans so that other countries' citizens don't die, then you have to make that case. Right on this? Right on this. Go ahead. Right. No doubt. Right. No doubt. You have to you 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 have to um, accept the analysis that it's a function of foreign occupation, right? And all I can tell you is that's the actual data. The argument that it can occur outside of the context of foreign occupation, certainly, I did say 5% occur in isolated, random ways. So I can't tell you there's not going to be a single suicide attack. Well, where's the evidence that it's ever escalated to a goal beyond a nationalist goal? Where's the, just turning it on its side. We've had 25 years of data now, okay? I can't tell you with the data, and I'm not going to tell you that I can make a higher, an ironclad 100% guarantee there will not be another suicide attack. There is some tiny percentage where you're, you might be right. But the point is, where it's a cost-benefit analysis in how we come to a policy conclusion. Based on the facts, there simply is no... My final response is that yeah. um, if you look at the interviews, I'm sure you have them sure. more than I with the 9-11 folks, at least the things that we have in these, the data that's been dug up on that so far. Yes. The argument in some points is that, it's, that it, occupation has to be very broadly defined. Because the notion of the Saudi and the Egyptian uh, hierarchy that is enforced not literally by the United States, but in terms of being a hegemon, was at least as much of a motivation. Therefore, it's not just overt occupation, but it's in fact the, the effective yeah. control of being a hegemon. I agree with you, um, and I just want to make a point from this slide. In the book, which I don't have time to do here, you see the 23 at the bottom? I don't just leave this as an analysis of the 43 versus the 23. I analyze the 23 at the bottom. And those 23 are coming overwhelmingly from the Muslim countries that we support the most, who have the biggest backing of American foreign policy. I am not, um, I just, that takes um, another five minutes. I don't, I just made a choice. Maybe in the future I should add those slides, but it's not a single slide. 
Um, but I, but that is what's an, I am analyzing that. So the number of true transnational is not 23. It's actually much smaller. Uh, two basic points. I mean, at first they did exactly find your presentation very compelling and interesting. We do hope to get a copy of your book when it's released. I'll take a victory. Um, essentially, the first point is that. The end of a U.S. military occupation, from my understanding of this issue, would not end their perception of the American threat. To build on mm-hmm. this gentleman's comment, the COCA colonization of Islamic culture is the threat. So they would still have a sense of hostility to the United States. And secondly, building on that, getting back to your policy implications of pulling U.S. military forces out, their targets not only the United States, but also the governments in that area they see as collaborators mm-hmm. with the United States. Mm-hmm. And the purpose of Al-Qaeda, again, from what I've read in the media, I haven't done any detailed study, is to eliminate those governments, replace them with governments they see as much more Islamic, and such a replacement, I would argue, would have a threat to American economic interests in the area, the oil. Mm-hmm. So in other words, I think your, your policy, although it may there's no doubt. First of all, I've never said there's no risk. I've been right, right up front with that. Okay, so I'm not trying to tell you I have the perfect solution. Point number two, I'm not trying to tell you Osama bin Laden won't still talk. I'd actually like to kill him. Okay, I'm not opposed to killing Osama bin Laden. I'm actually a little upset that we didn't try to kill Osama bin Laden a little more, although I only think it would help a little bit, just a little bit. But the fact of the matter is, the issue isn't why Osama says what he says. It's why people will actually die to go, for, to go forward. And what I'm showing you here is there's a real pattern in who dies for Al-Qaeda. There can even be lots of people who say they want to kind of do this as a coffee, you know, we're just going to get together and we're going to hate the United States. The fact is what we care about are the people who are going to kill Americans, especially with suicide attack, because without that suicide attack, 9-11 would not have killed 3,000 people. It's the suicide element that I'm trying to deal with, and that's why I'm willing to take some of the risks on some of the other issues. And I'm not telling you that we'll never have to fight another war in the Persian Gulf. I supported the first Gulf War, okay? I supported, I'm not, I supported Bush in 2000. I am not. Randy keeps asking me about this, so I'm going to tell you, okay, because he wants to know, and so there you go, all right, I, I am, uh, I mean, you know, uh, I'm, not a, I'm not doing this to get uh, uh, anything, I'm just doing it to deal with suicide, sir. Yeah, uh, I think that actually you could argue that Bush's invasion of Iraq followed your policy. Possible. If you supported the first Gulf War, then do you think that we should have stayed and finished Saddam off at that point? Because we no. left the troops in Saudi Arabia because we had to leave them in place. No. No, I wrote an op-ed, and actually it was in 2000 in the New York Times where I said we should have left then. And, the, I, and I had that position through the 1990s. And the reason I did not was not because of suicide terrorism. I just have to tell you that. It's just because of the overstretch of the U.S. military at that particular point in time, which is a much more minor uh, uh, issue, to be, to be so sure. Do you think that it would have been wise to leave Saddam in place without any kind of sanctions or control? Um, I, I think it would have been actually um, wise to keep the uh, military sanctions on um, and to drop the um, uh, economic sanctions. And in fact, um, especially after um, I read how Osama used those milita- the economic sanctions, which really did kill tens of thousands of Iraqis. This is an area I've published 
uh, I know a lot about. Let's just put it that way. And it's not true that he's making up those numbers. Um, it's true, you could dispute the numbers, but those are the best numbers by the best experts, including our department of the Census Bureau. That is, there is no better expert numbers. So you can dispute the numbers, but he's not picking any numbers other than our own Census Bureau numbers. And so the fact is, I would, I, what I said, when I, I, what I wanted to do with Iraq in the 1990s, I definitely wanted to secure Saudi Arabia and the Persian Gulf oil. But I thought, actually, after that point, we were well underway uh, to containing Saddam, maybe not by uh, 92 or 93, but certainly I became a believer by 96, 97 that, in fact, we're... Uh, there was just very little that Saddam was doing to get military capability. And the reason I think that is because I study armies and air power. That's what I do for 15 years. If you studied his military, <laughs> it was so weak. They couldn't even train for years. I mean, they had no ability to organize uh, in a serious training. Um, so we, they were just a paper time. Okay. They thought that we needed military somewhere in the region to make sure that he didn't get out of but we also realized it was a problem. What would you do to get American troops out of Saudi Arabia if you were convinced they had to be there as long as Saddam was in place? Well, before, this was a harder problem before we conquered Iraq. Now that we've conquered Iraq, even people who were opposed to the, first, to the Second Gulf War should acknowledge a benefit came out. But it's not getting rid of Saddam exactly, although you could spin it that way. There is a benefit which is the policy of offshore balancing requires some good relations with at least two of the three big states in the Persian Gulf. And those three are Iran, Iraq, and Saudi Arabia. In the 1980s, we had relations, good relations with two of the three. They were Iraq and Saudi Arabia. In the 1970s, we had good relations with two of the three. They were Iran and Saudi Arabia, right? So even people who are opposed to the Gulf War should recognize that, in fact, now we have the diplomatic basis to return to offshore balancing, which is we can have good relations. We, just because we leave doesn't mean we don't have good relations with the government, with the government of Iraq and Saudi Arabia. Well, I guess that my basic point here is past the tendency to get certain blocks to move in this puzzle, you have to commit, and once you've committed to something like that, you can't just withdraw your troops. I mean, we were in Iraq. We were going to have to stay there until it stabilizes to some degree. We were in Lebanon. Stay. We were in Lebanon, and the argument was made that we had to stay in Lebanon in order to stabilize it. Well, what happened is Lebanon has become far more stable after the Americans and the Israelis left it than it has. Came in. I mean, uh, the Syrians made it calm down. That was the Syrians came in in '75 and '76. The Syrians came in in 75 and 76, okay? And the key thing that happened in Lebanon from the 1980s on is that whole progression toward actual democracy that we're celebrating today has been the product of that 20-year shift. I'm not telling you that democracy in Iraq is going to be easy, smooth, and wonderful. Um, what I'm telling you is that we have to make the case... We have to make the case that it's so important to democratize Iraq that we're willing to do it at the risk of more 9-11s because democratizing Iraq with our forces there will not reduce the risk of 9-11. Anyway, great. Thank you. I need you thank you very much, folks. everybody. Uh, thank you. I want to thank Bob for coming. Yeah, it's thank been you, a great Rick. talk. Thank you.
uh, very provocative and exciting. Thank you all very much. Thank you, everybody. Thank you. Professor Parker's class will resume in 10 minutes, two minutes, because we're already 15 minutes behind. All right. Well, it's a, a little bit better than here in the room. Well, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, we don't have to say that.